Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy Holidays. It's good to be with you guys this morning and be able to open up the Word. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually excited for today and the next few weeks. I think it's so important what we're going to um, get into. Uh, it's, it's important we come back to this, I think, regularly. Um, when you enter into a new year, one of the things that's often discussed is, is setting goals and plans and vision, resolutions for the new year, and I think there's a lot of value uh, in doing those things. Um, but I really want us to make sure that we're not just setting any type of plans, uh, but we're, we're setting biblical vision for our life. And I'm going to explain a little bit about that. Uh, but really what I want to do is speak to you about the vision of this house and who we are um, I just think it's being that we're in a time of the year where we're already thinking about, you know, those types of things, vision and what it looks like individually. I really want to speak into who we are as a community. Uh, I, want to, I want to remind us of, of who we are, what we do. I want to speak into the foundations of this house. Um, foundation is something that when you walk into a house, you do not see, but it's really what's upholding everything. Uh, obviously, it's, it's Jesus in its simplest form, but... Uh, Christ has given us specific blueprints of how to do things, and, and I want to I lay that out. I want to, along the way, highlight values and whatnot of, of this house that my hope is that we would come out of this even, even in a deeper unity in 2023, because unity is the place of blessing. So I want us to be unified, and one of the ways to be unified as a house is to be running in the same direction, right? We all have individual callings, giftings. It's not meant to look the same, but as we're operating in very unique ways, kids, whatnot, um, ultimately, it's coming under this, this larger umbrella. God's doing something bigger, and we're, we're aware of our part, and it's unto this one, one end. So um, as you know, a lot of you know, if you've been in this house um, around COVID, the Lord really spoke clearly and gave us vision as to be at the heart a house of prayer. And we've been on a journey of really discovering what that means, and I don't think it's an exact model, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a community built around the presence of God, that's key. We're not, we're not building around man. We're not building around personality. We build around the presence of the Lord because his presence is transformative. And, um, and we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to build around the Lord in that way as we move forward. And my heart as a shepherd is, one of the shepherds, is to invite us all into this. That if you say, hey, this is the house where God's called me, then I want to invite you into the heartbeat of what God is doing here. We've got a lot of ministries that have so much uh, they're so significant, they're so important, but I want you to know what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, it's like the heartbeat. It's what supplies life to every other ministry. Amen? So let's, um, we'll, yeah, I'll share a little bit on this first. Let's go to Proverbs 29. I want to quickly just speak into vision, um, apply this to your own life with your own individual things going on, um, but uh, obviously I'm going to be approaching this as a community. I think it's important we really see ourselves as a as a body. Uh, the Western culture is very individualized. And there's a place where I know we have had our own experiences with the Lord, but actually primarily how God sees us, if you look at the scriptures, is as a body, as a community. Uh, and so I want us to um, grab hold of the vision for this house. And I want to share two verses. I'll go in Proverbs and then another one in Habakkuk, just to give you some context as to why this next month is so important. Because vision is really, really important as believers. And then what I want to do today is uh, I'll just kind of tap in just a little bit on Matthew 21 and, and what it means to be a, a house of prayer. 
All right, so Proverbs 29, verse 18. Everyone there? Somewhat? All right. First verse on vision. It says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. I'll stop right there. There are some translations, you may even see it at the bottom of your Bible, a footnote, actually say where there's no prophetic vision. Some say where there's no revelation, um, the people may uh, not just cast off restraint, but become discouraged. So I just want to put before you that the way it's worded in the ESV is where there's no prophetic vision. This is Solomon who writes this. And Solomon, uh, I had to learn this. Uh, I went on a journey to really understand what Solomon's speaking about. He's not just talking about normal vision. He's not just talking about get a five-year plan for your life. That's, there's value in that. But he's not just talking about writing a, a New Year's resolution. But when he speaks of prophetic vision, Solomon is really inviting us to get connected with the heart of God with the voice of God, to actually become keenly aware of the activity of God for the church you're part of, for the city you're part of, for the generation that you're living in. Like God has specific purposes and plans for your life individually, but for us as a community, for Massac Beach, for this island. And what Solomon's really writing here is that as believers, it is absolutely critical that we are living in awareness of God's heart and voice and plans for the church and city that you're a part of. Because if not, it says the people cast off restraint. What happens is we start moving in all different directions and we can get really, really discouraged because <laughs> we're not really sure which way to move. It, I think as believers, and, and one of my roles is we have to teach more than just biblical values and disciplines. That's very important. But if we teach those things disconnected from the larger story of what God's doing, ultimately what happens is we start to lose motivation hope. We're just not really aware of how our small yeses are actually linked to a much greater, more glorious story. But when you start recognizing that your small yes every day is tied into a much grander story of what God is doing, renewing and transforming Mastic Beach, all of a sudden there is a hope to press into that. Even when there's process. Ooh, <laughs> hate that word. Vision, vision gives purpose to your process and particularly to the pain that you may find in that process because without vision I'll say this I know I can speak for myself but I believe is we're very similar because we're all humans here that we often and that's pretty profound right there we're all the same species but we have a tendency to seek out the path of least resistance it's just natural so when we're presented with an option, whatever path is easier, we'll naturally be inclined to go that route. But what vision does is vision allows you to take not the path that's easiest, but God's path. Even when there's many obstacles and things coming your way, it allows you not to move too quickly to another direction, but you can actually endure what's happening because you see it's part of something much bigger. A lot of times without vision, here's, here's what can happen. As a community, we can take delay as a sign that we've misheard. Now we need to redirect. Or we can, take, uh, we can take obstacles as a sign of God's displeasure over our life. Maybe we've, he's upset. But if that's the case, let me present this to you. If, if, to, if obstacles is a sign that you've misheard God or he's displeased, then Moses would have quit after the first plague. Because Moses had biblical vision. God said, you're a redeemer, Moses. You're going to be a deliverer. But the first plague, Pharaoh didn't budge. Now, if you don't have vision, if you're not carrying God's voice in your life, you're going to step into that. The moment you try to do something, nothing happens. You're going to say, maybe I misheard. 
maybe this isn't the Lord. But it was one after another until 10 plagues when there was finally breakthrough, right? How could Moses endure and know, no, this is what God has said. He, he, had, he was carrying biblical vision. It gives purpose to our process. And I want you to know that as you're waiting, God is enlarging what he's put inside of you. So this is kind of what we're talking about with Mary. I feel like God it keeps bringing us back to these things, and it's not intentional. It's just, it just I don't. This, he's encouraging us right now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to, to, I feel like this is honestly. I was talking with Johnny the other day. I just feel like I, I know this can be easy, easily said, but I really feel so many promises. I just feel like we're going to see a lot of these things come to pass this year. I really do, and I think the Lord has been prepping us these last few weeks of how to faithfully carry, uh, even when you're not seeing something come to pass right away. But, but as we're carrying this thing and waiting, God's enlarging it. Just like a woman in childbirth, what's happening as she's, as she's waiting in pregnancy? What's inside is enlarging. Faith is enlarging for us as believers. Expectancy, hope, all these things are happening, right? Yeah, amen. So if we don't have vision, we'll cast off restraint. I want to say that vision is really important because it, um, and I'm just sharing this so we understand where we're going these next few weeks. It, it, uh, it cultivates concentration, in other words, vision allows us to, um, it provides healthy boundaries for your life and for our life as a church community. And it actually becomes a filter for us when making decisions. So when something is presented, when we're holding to vision, when we have God's voice and God's heart, we're able to take that thing and say, wait a minute, does this ultimately lead us to where God is taking us? If not, we cannot do it. Be that's faithfulness, guys. Faithfulness is not just right versus wrong. That's an aspect of it, but that's a very, like, baseline foundational level. I think the next step of maturity and faithfulness is not right versus wrong, but it's best versus good. Like you can have a lot of good things come your way, but where you really grow in faithfulness is when you're able to say, I know this is good. There's nothing wrong with this, but ultimately this is not the exact thing that God has for us. So vision allows us to say, okay, this is good. This is, I mean, it's scriptural, but that's not what God has said for this house. And I'm sharing this so you know why we are so stubborn in ways to stick to these simple principles of gathering morning and night before the Lord, like evangelism. There's certain things that God has spoken, and this is why. And if it's not ultimately adding or leading into that, then we don't want any part of it. Amen? So one other verse, Habakkuk 2, and then I'm going to just share into the house of prayer. Habakkuk 2. So as you're turning there, Habakkuk 2, um, one other thing, with vision bringing us into a singular focus, another thing that's really, really important is uh, that, that unifies us, as I was saying before. And I was thinking about this, uh, and I, I thought this was pretty, pretty interesting, that um, the opposite of vision, I, I would make a strong case that the opposite of vision is division, division. And what's interesting is that the prefix word die, it's, it's, it's that, just that word D-I, it means two things. It either means two or it means apart. So I would say that where there's no vision, there's division. In other words, where there's not singular vision, you either have two visions, which causes division, or you are living apart from vision, which causes division in the house. So vision is the, when there's division in the house, a lot of times it's not something that's always like, intentional or malicious it's just that everyone's kind of running in a million directions vision allows us to take our unique giftings and get in line and run together run after what the lord has for us so habakkuk 2 verse 2 and 3 one other verse it says and the lord answered me 
Such an important verse. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. This is really straightforward. The Lord says, write down the vision and make it plain. Why? So that when someone comes around and reads it, they're able to run with it. Verse 3 says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Isn't that really encouraging? <laughs> right? Because in that process of waiting, the tendency is to redefine it, restructure it in order to take a different step. But there, there's this hope here that we wait on the Lord and it will come to pass everything that he has said. But here's the part I want to highlight. We are to write the vision, make it plain so that he who reads it can run with it. Vision is meant to be, we're meant to run with vision, not walk with it. Run means vision promotes passion, right? It means fully investing, fully committing, fully embracing. The heart is that when God speaks, God's people would come around his voice, what he's doing, and then we could run with it. Not kind of be in it, kind of out, kind of one step in, one step out. No, no, all of us would fully give everything that we have for God's kingdom, so if a vision is not worth running for, it's not a God vision. <laughs> it should inspire. It should be like, wow, this is incredible. This is beyond what we can do in our own strength. Or this is just so, it's so alive. And this is worthy of giving my heart to. And the scriptures tell us how we are to enable people to run. I love it. It's not this weird process. Write it down. <laughs> Write it down and make it plain and simple so that anyone who sees it can get it and run. So I've taken Habakkuk 2 very literal. <laughs> and I've actually put something. That's why we have this beautiful white sheet hanging over here. <laughs> Special shout out to Ray for hooking it up. Um, I just want to put, <laughs> and Mark, sorry. Sorry, Mark. So I want to put something up here real quick. Beautiful. All right. I'm going to step over. This is, this is not worded out in a paragraph, but it's just, it's really simple and I can make printouts at the table, but I, this is going to provide context for where we're going these next few weeks. What we're going to look at today ultimately is br briefly just hitting on what it means, Matthew 21, for us to be a house of prayer. But under the house of prayer, there's really three things the Lord has spoken to us as why we do this, why we gather morning and night, why we're so insistent on getting people before the Lord in worship intercession. Number one, as we'll see next week, at the heart of the house of prayer, it's first ministry to the Lord. We do it to love Jesus. This is a way that we love him. We spend time. It's part of being a priest. You actually draw near to God and you bless him. You and I have the ability to move the heart of God. That is a mind-blowing statement that us as finite creatures, when you open your mouth and say, God, I thank you. I love you. I bless you. You're holy. You're actually moving the creator's heart. You were made for that. And he actually made you in love to love him back. So ministry to the Lord is the heart of what we do. Second is not only are you blessing God, but you get changed in the process. So it's personal revival. We believe that uh, discipleship begins with beholding the lamb, and we're changed in that process. We'll talk about that. And then the last thing is city revival. Worship intercession is so essential. If you look at history, it precedes the moves and outpourings of the Holy Spirit. So you've got three things happening in this prayer room. We're ministering to God, we're being personally changed, and the city is going to be changed through it. Amen. And there's an expression that we have that just simply encapsulates all of this. It's not perfect. It's not meant to be. It's not law. It's just a way for, for you to kind of memorize it, beholding Jesus and bringing his kingdom. We exist to behold Jesus and bring his kingdom. Amen? All right. So today, 
We're going to look at that, just that title right there for just a few minutes here is what it means to be a house of prayer. So if you can, turn with me to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. And I'm going to be reading just in the opening verse. But I'm starting here, and here's why. I'm going to go into Matthew 21 in a moment, and we'll just land there. But I want us to see something. I want us to see how when Jesus came into the temple in Matthew 21 and cleansed it and declared, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. I want us to see that that verse and that meaning of being a house of prayer, how it's connected to a deeper desire of God that spans the entirety of the scriptures. Like, I want you to see that the zeal that Jesus expressed when he came in and began to drive out all of the activity that he found in his house, that wasn't Jesus just doing something strange in that moment. He was carrying the revelation of the Father's heart. For to see Jesus is to see the Father. And what Jesus expressed when he drove out all those things from his house is what's always been in the heart of God from eternity past to eternity future. There is a specific desire that God has for his house. And we're trying to build as best we can according to that desire. <laughs> so as we just, just quickly just track through this Genesis revelation and see this desire that has always been in God's heart will help us understand what Jesus is doing when he says it's, a, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer. So let's read verse 1 of Isaiah 66. I could have went a lot of places, but this just makes it really clear. There is a question that God is asking here. And I believe this question reveals his deep desire. And here's the fascinating part. At least in a very small part, you and I have an ability to be an answer to this question. <laughs> that should stir us and provoke us that this, what we're seeing here, as I believe is what's burning deepest in the heart of God, and we have an opportunity, what we're trying to build is something that is actually responding to this to this ache that God has. Because God is an emotional being. He, he has emotions and feelings. And we want to we respond to that and love him well. So Isaiah 66 verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. And here it is. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? <laughs> God is asking, where is my house? Where is my home? <laughs> home church, part of the reason of the naming. Where is my home? Where is a resting place for me in the earth? Now I want you to catch this because this, the, the dichotomy in this is, is fascinating. That the scripture opens up by saying, the Lord says, I'm the one whose throne is in heaven and whose footstool is the earth. Now, now God the Father, Yahweh, he's spirit. So this is just using imagery to help us understand that we're talking about a massive transcendent infinite being and the presentation here is that this god he fills the cosmos that's heaven and earth in fact god created all things as we'll see in genesis the cosmos is actually a picture of the temple of which when it was created god would fill and rest in it so much so that the heavens is where he's enthroned and his feet is resting on the earth <laughs> isn't that an incredible picture the, what's being highlighted there is what's called the omnipresence of God. 
which simply means God is everywhere. Now, there's no better psalm, or I should say scripture, that captures this than Psalm 139, where David says, I can go to the highest of highs, and you are there. I can go to the lowest of lows, Sheol, and you are there. There is nowhere I can go where your presence is not there. What is he speaking about? The omnipresence of God. The one who's enthroned in the heavens, but whose feet is resting on the earth, who fills the heavens and the earth. And yet what this text is saying, I heard it actually, something quoted this week that was so perfect for what God has shown in my heart. That the God who dwells everywhere desires specifically to rest somewhere. The God who fills the cosmos and is omnipresent is actually expressing that although I fill all things, I have a particular desire to rest somewhere with someone, to be with the people. And I want you to know that that somewhere is the foundation of this house. The God who fills all things, who is everywhere omnipresent, but says, the omnipresent one says, I want to be somewhere. We say, God, we want that somewhere to be here. That's the heartbeat of this house. It's the foundation of this house. We pray, God, in little old Mastic Beach, <laughs> would you find that somewhere? Would you find that house? Would you find that resting place? Would you find a place that draws you? Guys, we're not talking about, right now God is omnipresent, but not everyone's encountering, experiencing God. When we're talking about a resting place like this, you're talking about the presence of God in a place, or really more so in the New Covenant, on a people that is His glory, His power, His plans, his presence is manifesting in an unusual way for an extended period of time. That when people come around, it's like, whoa, I know God's everywhere, but God is here. Ezekiel 47, the, the future city, it says, it will be known by this, the Lord is here, the Lord is there. Like, I want more than anything else, the defining mark of this house, not to be who's, who's a pastor, who's the worship leaders. I want them to come in and say, all I know is this one thing, the Lord is there. The presence of God is the defining mark. And I believe the scriptures lay out things for us that actually show us what attracts God. And we're going to get into this in the upcoming weeks of how a people that have come into agreement with him and who he is and what he does, that's thanksgiving, praise, worship, intercession, actually draws on the manifest presence of God. He wants to be there. Genesis says God, it says the Holy Spirit will not put up so, uh, much longer with the rebellion of man. In other words, there's an aspect where God will not rest where he's resisted. But in a place where people are con continually coming into agreement with his nature, his works, God is drawn to that place. It's a resting place. And we want it. I know you want it as well. Where's God's first sanctuary? If you actually think about it, when God created all things, the first sanctuary is actually creation itself. I want you to capture this because you see God's design right from the beginning. God's design reveals his desire. You see how God designed things in the beginning actually reveals what's, what's burning in his heart. So when God creates all things, do you know, as I said before, the cosmos are actually a picture of the temple. Has anyone ever heard this? It's fascinating. Um, Isaiah 40, 22 says that when God was creating, he stretched out the heavens like a canopy so that he could live in the tent. In other words, when God creates the heavens and the earth, he's not just haphazardly creating things, and it's not just for man. He's actually creating a place for him to rest with his people. That's what he's creating. So when he creates, um, Jewish thought is the cosmos is the temple of God. It's imagery for that. Eden was the holy place, and the Garden of Eden is the holy place of holies. 
and Adam and Eve were the first priests. You could study how the physical tabernacles that were built, all of the articles, the menorah, is pictured as a tree of life. All of it connects back to Eden. The cherubim were stitched on the veil. The cherubim were put outside the Garden of Eden, the Holy of Holies. What happened when Jesus died? The veil was torn. What was split open? The two cherubim split open. Eden restored back to the people of God. This is, this is how God has formed every single thing. So he creates the cosmos, Eden, Garden of Eden. It's the picture of this, this sanctuary where God comes now to rest. And then it says on that seventh day, God, I just gave you the answer, but what did God do on the seventh day? God rested. Now, what did he say in Isaiah 66? Where is my house? Where can I rest? Isaiah, and then we see in Genesis that after he creates this sanctuary, although it actually is literally creation, it's a picture of a sanctuary, on the seventh day, God comes and rests. The rest of God is not simply because he got tired. <laughs> it's also not simply just to give us a pattern of how we are to uh, live our lives. Work a little bit, then rest. Work a little bit, then rest. There, I think there's truth in that. But the deeper reality is God could rest here because now he had somewhere to rest. <laughs> that he actually created this place with a specific purpose that he would rest and be able to dwell and meet with his people that he's created. That's the heart of it. The seventh day creation of God walking with man, it's... It wasn't an appendix to the creation account. It wasn't just to tell us, oh, here's how God and man kept themselves busy after all things were made. The seventh day rest is the whole point of the creation account. It's the apex and climax. God made all things and made us in his image, not to elevate man, but to say you, unlike the birds and everything else, because you're in my image, have the ability to encounter me. You can walk with me. You can meet with me. I can rest in you and on you and be with you. And this is the entire purpose of what God has designed from the beginning. And then Genesis 2.15 says that God took Adam and he placed him in the garden. I, I, I highlight this a lot because I think it's fascinating because Adam didn't wake up or, you know, didn't come from being created and say, uh, let me walk in the garden and say, God, where are you? God placed him there, which reveals this is God's desire. This is God's plan. This is God's idea. God says, I've created a place on the earth where I can meet with you. You can meet with me, I can rest on you, I can encounter with you. And that, my friends, is a picture of the sanctuary. This is what God's temple was always meant to be. We are a meeting place. We are a resting place. There are many things that come out from this place, but more than anything else, we were created to, to dwell with God, to, to, to have God rest upon us, to come here and meet with, with God. It's so simple. Why are we here? To meet with God. That's it. We're not, we say this a lot, but it's just, we want to reiterate as we go in the new year, we're not here to gather around a message. I love messages, but a lot of times we can gather for a message and miss God. It grieves my heart too when, when the, it can happen where we say, I don't come in, people miss worship for the message because they say, I'm just here for a message. Guys, all theology is unto doxology. What does that mean? All study of God is unto the worship of God. If you say that you're after the study of God, but your worship of God is not there, something is not right. We are here to worship God. We are here to come in and say, God, regardless of what's going on in my life, you are worthy. You died for me. You came and became a man. You bled out for me. I was lost and now I'm found. And we come in with hearts set on God saying, God, we're here to meet with you. I promise you this. The more we grow in this understanding of coming to meet with God, you will see resting glory on this house in increased measure. It draws him and draws, and draws him in a deep way.
It's what we're after. So God creates this sanctuary. He comes to rest with man. He rested. This is what his temple's meant to be. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Uh, man sins and there is alienation. There's separation between God and man. And I believe, I, can, I think you can make a case that the three saddest words ever echoed in the scriptures happen when God walks into his house, his sanctuary, and he comes in and he comes to man who he created to meet with him in his sanctuary and says, where are you? <laughs> And I want you to see, when we go to Matthew 21, I believe the same zeal that we see of God when he comes into the garden and says, where are you? It's the same zeal that was driving the heart of Jesus when he started kicking out all the business and commerce and entertainment that he found in his house, saying again, where are you? I made you to meet with me. I made you so that I would rest on you and in you. But you've made this about something else. Where are you? Say, God, bring it back. Reform, reform this house. Do you know what happened the moment... Do you know what happened the moment Jesus drove everything out and says, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer? The very next verse says, and the lame and the sick came to him and he healed them. That's what God wanted in his house. That goes into city revival. As we come back to presence-centered, oh, we're going to see, as we are, more and more of what it means to have the kingdom of God on the earth. So God creates the sanctuary, comes and says, where are you? We know that man is ultimately banished, which is actually mercy, but that's another message. And I want you to know that the rest of the story of the scriptures, God's desire to rest with his people never diminished, never waned. He didn't give up on that. He didn't restructure and say, we're going to do something different. We're going to give up on that plan. His zeal has remained the same. One of the dominant things that are said throughout the Old Testament scripture with covenant language, you'll see it, where covenants being made are through the prophets, Something along the lines of this. God will say, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell with you, or I will walk with you. What did God do with Adam? Walked with him. What is God saying? I've not given up on my original design. You will be my resting place. You will be my resting place. I will walk with you. I will dwell with you. Every physical tabernacle and temple, Moses, Solomon, David's, if you study it through, you will find... All of, like I said before, all of the artifacts, furniture, it all has such profound meaning of back to the garden. And then, think about David. Guys, David, Jesus is number one far and above. But if you would ask me, like, who's for me, who's next? Like, and it's way, way down. <laughs> uh, but it's David. And, and David, there's something about his life. And there's something about his life that stirred the heart of God. David received a title that I... I would long for, for God to say this about me and for this community, which he said, David is a man after my own heart. What's he saying? He's saying, David wants what's deepest in my heart. And do you know that God, David's leadership is set apart. Let's just be clear. David, although a very fallen, broken man, which is also encouraging, David was set apart so much so that he became the gold standard for every king. So much so that Jesus is said to be the son of David, sitting on the throne of David. That's not because David is greater by any means, but it's actually honoring the life that David lived. And David tapped into something in God's heart that Jesus came to fulfill. What set apart David between everyone else that he would receive this glorious title of being a man after God's own heart? Psalm 132 gives us the key. Solomon, his, his son, the son of David, David's passed away. Solomon comes before God and pens Psalm 132. And he's remembering his father, David, and he says, God, remember my father who made a vow to you. And what was his vow? David said, I will not rest until I find a resting place for you on the earth. 
David knew this is what was deepest in the heart of God. What made David a man after God's own heart? He knew that what God wanted more than anything else was to rest with his people, <laughs> to dwell with his people. How did David do it? That's future weeks, but he created what's known as David's tabernacle. So different than Moses's. It was all new covenant. On Mount Zion for 33 years, David set up priests who would worship and intercede before the Ark of the Covenant. And God breathed on David's kingdom and leadership, which is representative of the kingdom of Israel. David's leadership and his, the, the, the years that he led is known as the golden age of Israel. It expanded. There was victory. There was blessing. Everything you can imagine. Why? Because in this little tent on Mount Zion, you had priests day and night coming before God. Most of your Psalms that David's a part of is written from the tabernacle of David. They were releasing prophecies over the Messiah that they had no idea. I can't even tell you how many amazing new songs have been released from the prayer room as we gather before the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus, and we just come to bless him. Man, this really stirs my heart the more we come back into it. And God's inviting us all into this. And David, this is another thing we've talked about. Why did David create this tabernacle? Well, if you look at Revelation 4, it's the clearest description of God's throne room where he's resting in the heavens. And Revelation 4 makes it abundantly clear. The two dominant things that surround God's throne room right now is unceasing worship and prayer. The saints, the prayer of the saints is like bowls that come before the throne room of God. Which means God is resting in the midst of perpetual praise and prayer. What happens when you start to do that on the earth? <laughs> Heaven comes down on the earth. <laughs> When you start getting people gathering around the throne room of God, the presence of God, and lifting up perpetual praise and prayer, submitting their hearts to this, guess what? God's glory comes. You bless the heart of God, you get changed in the process, and I can tell you this, it will spill out and there will be city change as well. Oh, there's work to be done in the go and evangelize, don't get me wrong, but this right here is what gives life to every other ministry. In Jesus' name. And then Jesus steps on the scene in Matthew 21. And he's the fulfillment of David's leadership. So that, that, what David established, I believe this is what was, Jesus came as a fulfillment of that. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that now in the new covenant through Christ, the resting place of God is not, it's not a physical building, it's us, guys. Ephesians 2 says that we are the household of God. Spiritual stones, brick by brick. When we gather together, you know what we are? We're the holy of holies. When you gather together, we're the garden of Eden. God says, I want to walk among you. But do you know that you can have positional realities that you never experience? We can be the Garden of Eden, the Holy of Holies, but be so fixated on all these other things, as often happens in church today, that we miss what was available. Paul said, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So walk in your freedom. In other words, Paul says, you can be free and live like a slave. And we can have the manifest presence of God dwelling in our midst and be so fixated on other things that we walk out and miss all of it. Positionally, he says, oh, I'm in you. I think it was Mike Bickle who said, God, God dwells in every believer but rests on few. There's something about a life that is submitted to the Lord like this that attracts the presence of God that way. Amen. All right, let's turn to Matthew 21. Every time I bring my heart back into the, these things, I just I feel it come alive, guys. And I want to just invite you personally to join into this.
this upcoming year. Man, there's so many things to say in that. We'll leave it for other weeks. But what would happen if an entire community given into this as is really happening already, but I want, I want everyone, I'm jealous for everyone. So Matthew 21, uh, I'm going to read specifically verses 12 and 13. And I want you to see now, as I shared earlier, that in light of, in light of this, this thread, this larger meta-narrative of God creating in Genesis, all the way, it's all the way to Revelation. Do you know Revelation ends with, it says, the city of God's coming down, and it says, um, uh, it says, behold, God's dwelling place is with man. And then he says, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's the covenant language. He's restored Eden. In fact, if you keep reading Revelation 21, it goes into Eden-like imagery, uh, a garden-like of this city. God is, God is restoring it. So I want to give the earth a preview of where it's going. Yes? Like, why live for things that are not in alignment with ultimately what it's going to be? God dwelling with his people. God resting on his people. Why would we make it about anything else? Man. So I want you to see the zeal of Jesus that's expressed in here. It's the zeal that was expressed by the Father in Genesis 1 and throughout the scriptures. That's, what's, that's what he's coming in with. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. This is the uh, triumphal entry, his final week on the earth in Jerusalem. And as he enters his final week, he goes right to the temple, right to the house of God. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. So there's all this buying and selling that's going on in the house of God. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Jesus is the living tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The living tabernacle is going to go into the physical tabernacle. <laughs> and it says he, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And then verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. A den of robbers. <laughs> Jesus comes into his house and this like, Man, this really hits me when I come and just sit on this for a little bit, that the living tabernacle comes into his home and they do not even recognize him. They don't even recognize when the presence of God shows up. <laughs> they can't discern it. Why? Because what is he met with? Here's two questions to think about. What was Jesus met with in his house and what was he expecting to find? What was he met with? What he met with, I believe, is he was met with a house that ultimately was being built for man. You, you can get into the particulars and the specifics of what's taking place here, but let's just summarize it this way. When Jesus walked into the house of God, he was met with trade and business and activity. And it can look like today a, a, an overabundance of classes and programs which are not inherently wrong by any means. But when these become the fixation and the sole purpose of why we gather, we have lost life itself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life is not found in these things. What you have is you have now... Christians who have schedules busier than ever, but their hearts are just as empty as they were before. Why? Because they've only filled it with good things, but Christ himself is the life. Jesus comes into a house that is it's built on humanistic leadership. The presence of God is a, is a, is a bifactor. It's on the side. They're leading from self, from man's ingenuity and, and human wisdom. This is, what, this is what he finds. And the problem with this is that this is often becomes the sole metrics for success. How big, how fast, how many. Now, growth is good. We should experience growth. Book of Acts, the early church exploded. Growth is not bad. 
But when that becomes the sole metric, the primary metric of how successful we are, how many, how many services, how many people, how many numbers, this, 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 we've missed it, guys. The primary measurement for success is how recognizable is the presence of Christ in our midst and in the lives of the people gathering here. If not, that's where we begin to look for our confidence. That's a scary place. I have to guard my heart from that. I feel discouraged. Why? Why? Why do I feel discouraged? God is with us. Why am I discouraged? Well, I would hope by now we'd have this, we'd have that. What? Why though? God is with us. Our confidence is not found in numbers. David took a census to try to find confidence in the numbers of many at fighting. God said, don't take the census, David. David did it because that's what kings did. You know what happened? 70,000 men died. We often talk about his sin with Bathsheba, but that led to the death of one. This led to the death of 70,000. What did he do? He tried to find confidence in numbers rather than the fact that God was with him. God was saying, David, you don't need to count your numbers. I'm right there with you in your midst. But no, let me just be sure that I'm going to have victory in this. I need to make sure I have that many. Man, Lord, reform your house. God, that we would say, if you're with us, we have confidence. Let growth come. They're not mutually exclusive. Let fruit abound. Let, let all these things happen. But God, not at the expense of your presence. And I think one of the sobering parts of this ministry paradigm that's built on going and faster and bigger, please hear me in this, the sobering reality or the, or the scary reality is not that we can fail in it, but that actually we'll be very successful in what we're going after. Because failure would at least cause us to stop our tracks. The part that scares me more is that you can actually be very successful when you start building like that. What do I mean? What we're really after then is the praise of man. And Jesus, this is his primary teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with uh, giving, fasting, and prayer. In all three, Jesus says, be careful that you do not do these things for the praise of man. Because if you do, he does not say that you'll fail. He says quite the opposite. He says, you will receive your reward in full. But the problem is you'll miss out on the reward of the Father. That's the scary part, is that we can go for the praise of man and all these things that look appealing like the church of Sardis who had a reputation for being alive, but God says it's dead. And the scary part is that we can be fed with the idea that we're alive, right? I'm not speaking about us. I'm just, in a general sense, we say, God, this is why we want to build for, for you and around you. So then that second part of verse 13, what does Jesus expect to find? This is important, guys. We know what he drove out, but what, what, are you, what was he looking for? And again, this is the journey we'll be on for the rest of our lives. But what should God's house really look like? And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And he's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah. Interesting. I always wonder, who's he speaking to when he says, you make it a den of robbers? You're stealing. Now, he may be saying, I'm sure it's, it's loud for people to hear. I believe he's specifically addressing leaders, though, in that house that have built a house that is so centered on all these other things. And I believe he says, you're a den of robbers because you steal my people's attention. You steal their affections. You steal their hearts from me. They're meant to be here with me, but you've got them looking at all these other things. But the primary thing that Jesus was looking for, he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. Now, I don't believe there's an exact model to this by any means, but I also, I also, what we're learning is that a house of prayer, it's not just about an activity, guys. Although there is something you do when you worship and pray, and we'll see that it's worship intercession, I think, is really the two things intermingled. Really, a house of prayer is a house that is centered on God. It's prayers about communion. Because you can pray, you can have a prayer language and have activity, but miss what it was all unto, which was to meet with God. We can worship and sing songs, but our hearts be far from God. <laughs> 
the whole purpose of worship intercession as we gather in the house of prayer is to meet with God, to encounter God. So what is the house of prayer? It's simple. It's a house centered on the Lord. It's a house that's in constant fellowship, a house where God is dwelling and resting. Psalm 50, verse 5, God says, gather the saints together unto me. Don't gather around gifting. Don't gather around personality. Gather around me. <laughs> that's why we gather. But it's important because if you were to ask most places, are you a house of prayer? And I don't say this heavy-handed, but I, I know I fell into this. I would say, of course we're a house of prayer. Why? Well, we believe prayer is important. <laughs> we have a right attitude towards prayer, or it's one of our core values. Now, that's good, but is that what Jesus was expecting to find? When he says, my house should be a house of prayer, was it just about people saying, guys, prayer is really important? Or if you look at our values on our wall, you'll notice prayer is on there. That's good stuff to do, but I think he's looking for something more, and we'll go into that next week, but he's quoting Isaiah, and there's something specific that he's talking about of what priests would do that we as New Covenant priests get to do. He says, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah. This, this fascinates me. Isaiah was a prophet that the people of God loved, admired, adored, probably quoted often. In other words, why do I say that? They were probably convinced that they were living in alignment with Isaiah's words. We love Isaiah. <laughs> we quote Isaiah all the time. And then Jesus says, yeah, well, it is written. You have language, but not lifestyle with it. <laughs> That's really what's probably happening. You have language, but you actually don't understand what he's saying here. Right? So we say, God, remove the blinders. If we're built around something else, we want to really be a house of prayer. This is God's definition of his house. I am preaching right now. I love preaching. If we do not preach, <laughs> we're... Or have around, we're going to have a new uh, midweek Bible study. There's the plug coming in a few weeks. First and second Peter. I love Bible study. We need to be forever growing in the word of God. But by God's own admission, he does not say my house should be a house of preaching. He doesn't say, I love evangelism. We have so much that's about to go down in the summer. I cannot wait. We're going to have a full month. We're going to have teams coming in. We are going to, from May to August, it's going to be like heavy blitz, gospel crusades every, uh, on Friday nights. It's going to be amazing. If we didn't do that, we're not making disciples. We're not going to advance the kingdom. But Jesus did not say, my house should be a house of evangelism. He said it will be a house of prayer. Because this is what gives life to every other ministry. That's the key. It's unto these things. But this is where there's substance, life, anointing, power. It's right here. Hmm. All right. I'm going to save some other things for next week. So we have something to talk about. <laughs> Now we got plenty. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.